as we grow as believers, the news that we want to be about is what we were just hearing about, like Christian and others were praying, that we have this privilege to participate. That's what God, that's the work of God in this world, that, that all this other stuff is going to change and ebb and flow and ultimately come under judgment. This is the permanent and uh, increasingly uh, we can use different techniques to keep bringing these things before us. And praying for these, beloved, uh, is very important. It's part, it's part of the participation in the work. And there's a sharing in the reward, just praying, interceding, and, and maybe even financially helping. But all of that, that's the kingdom of the Lord. That's what we increasingly want to be focused on and about. And then also along with that is is the, the Christian community that we are a part of, this local church and maybe other Christians that you have in, in your sphere uh, outside of this local assembly uh, to be building up and and encouraging one another and using whatever times we have together to, as it were, wash one another's feet. Because the Lord gave that great promise of blessing attached, verse 17 of chapter 13, if you know these things, blessed or happy are you if you do them. I'm particularly struck by this, these first 17 verses of John 13, I think the last four verses of verse 8 uh, kind of summarize the whole thrust of that section. No part with me. In other words, he's instructing them on what it is to have a part with him. And to have a part with him would be to be in fellowship with him, to be in communion with him, to be in relationship with him, to be about the Father's business, to be about his, the Lord's things. See, that's, that's what it is to have a part with him. And, and that's part of what we want to communicate in sharing the gospel, but also in edifying those that have come to Christ. That's the foot washing. There's the bathing all over. The washing of regeneration, that's, that's conversion. And then there's the continual, ongoing renewing of the Holy Spirit, the washing of one another's feet. And the primary agent for that is the Word of God. We see that. Uh, let me just show you a few verses. Over in chapter 15, the most immediate context, that would be uh, our technique that we would want to use to validate is there a mention of that in the immediate context. And in chapter 15, verse 3, you are already clean because of the Word. So we see already introduced right in the immediate context that it's the Word of God and the response to it that enables the cleansing. Whether it be the washing of regeneration, which is a response to the gospel, part of the Word of God, or the ongoing renewing of the Holy Spirit, and that's all 66 books. <laughs> and, and how we can, as we interact, as we serve, as we talk to one another on the phone, as we're serving in the assembly building or out on the soccer field, thinking of scriptures that fit the situation, see, and helping one another. And, of course, as we mentioned 
on the Lord's Day, we want to be careful how we do that. If it's in a situation where it might be taken as offense or rebuke to a brother or sister, we want to be careful how we word it because we all have weaknesses, we all have frailties, and we all want to be treated with dignity and respect. And that's certainly worthy. Over in Ephesians in chapter 5, there's another mention. Paul mentions to the Ephesian Christians in verse 24, Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. Then the next verse, that he might do what? Sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by what? The word, see. In Second Corinthians chapter 7, Paul is urging the Corinthians about the importance of cleansing. And it's in a strong command. Therefore, having these promises, chapter 7, verse 1, Beloved, let us be about a certain business. Cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and the spirit. So it's not just the physical, it's the mental, see, the thought life. Because the thought life impacts what we do. As a man thinks in his heart, so he is. The more what we, if you want to know what we really are, examine what you spend the most of your time thinking about. And I hope for this, those of us that are Christians, it's the word of God. It's the relationship we have with the Lord. And that's part of that ongoing renewing of the Holy Spirit. Perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Well, that's the ongoing renewing of the Holy Spirit, if you will, see. And it's the Word of God that is the primary agent the Holy Spirit's going to use. And so that is why, as we mentioned on the weekend, that is why we encourage our young people to be memorizing Scripture. That's why we encourage new believers to be in a regular reading program in the Word. But may we say, it's not just for new believers. It's not just for young Christians. It's for old Christians, too. I was speaking to someone recently who took the challenge of reading through the Scriptures uh, she's in her early 20s, took the challenge of reading through the scriptures in a year, and, and she just was as excited as a, as an eight-year-old child getting a bicycle for a present or something. She would just, she just, and it encouraged her, and she said, you challenged me to do it. I didn't, I barely remembered that exchange because it had happened a year before, and she did it. And I said, well, great, now start your second round. What? Yeah, I said, yes, it's, the second round is going to be easier after you've done it one time. The first time, it just seems monumental, 66 books. How am I going to do this? Just like you do everything else that you plan for in your life. If it's a priority, you'll do it. <laughs> you'll work it in. Now, I want to come over to John, I mean, I'm sorry, to uh, Mark chapter 14, because I told you, that we would look at the progression of events. And I, and I hope I'm not going to lose you because I know it's a Wednesday or it's a Tuesday. It's the midweek and, and uh, it's the end of the day. You're tired. And so you may just want to listen and not turn pages. But if you can look at these scriptures with your own eyes, it will help you to see I'm trying to show you or prove to you 
the events that of Holy Thursday as we see them, as we have them in the scriptures. Say it again. It's worthy of repeating. We're all about rightly handling the word of God because we're going to give account for how we handle the word of God and because it's the mind of God. And if you respect someone's mind and you respect who they are, you'll rightly handle what they say or write. Correct? And so that's why we want to be careful. So how does this fit together? Well, Mark 14, and Matthew's parallel uh, pretty well lines up with Mark. In Mark 14, verse 12 to 16, is... Our Lord sending two of his disciples into Jerusalem, remember, to find the place. And he tells them that they will find, in verse 15, a large upper room furnished and prepared there make ready for us. That is, for the Passover, of course, the Lord plans to start the Lord's Supper. He's going to do a foot washing. He's going to excuse and dismiss Judas and correct Peter. There's a lot of things going to happen that night. But he says, go prepare the Passover. 6 p.m., sundown, Thursday evening. The Jewish Friday began at sundown on Thursday, so it's, it's Friday already when they start this. And then in verse 17, Mark 14, verse 17, in the evening, 6 p.m., he came with the twelve, and as they sat and ate, Jesus said, Assuredly, I say to you, one of you who eats with me will betray me. Now, because of that statement and some of these statements with regard to Judas, some well-meaning Bible students, as I say, they're men that I respect. Some of them were my mentors, will want to manipulate the order that Luke and John have to make this fit. But I'm suggesting to you that it all fits together just like Mark and Luke and John have it chronologically all our Lord's saying, he's not exposing Judas completely here yet. He is just announcing something, isn't he? That there's a betrayer there. And he goes on to say, as they began to be sorrowful and to say to him one by one, is it I, is it I? And another said, is it I? And he answered, it's the one of the twelve who dips with me in the dish. He's not dipping in the dish. He's only saying it's the one who dips in the dish. You say, well, why is he giving all these preliminaries? I think because he's still reaching out to Judas. He's saying, Judas, basically in, in hidden language, if, as it were, I know you're here and I know who you are. It's to awaken the conscience of Judas that he's doing this. He hasn't dipped in the sop. As we'll see in John 13, when he dips in the sop and hands it to Judas, that's when Satan enters Judas, and then Judas is demon-possessed, and the Lord then commands him, go do it. Okay, but up to this point, I believe Judas has the possibility is there for him to repent. And, of course, that's what we want. If, that, if you were Judas... If you had a friend in that kind of situation, that's what we want for them, right? We don't want them to be eternally condemned. And then he makes that statement, verse 21, the Son of Man indeed goes as it is written of him, and woe to that man by whom he was betrayed. And then, as they were eating, verse 22, the Lord's Supper. Okay? And after they have the Lord's Supper, Mark tells us in verse 26, they sung a hymn, and went out to the Mount of Olives. So they're in the large upper room furnished. Celebrate the Passover. 
We don't know that explicitly from Mark. We'll see that here in Luke in a minute. The Lord's Supper. He's made an announcement so far about Judas. Okay, so now to go over to Luke chapter 22. And the parallel passage in Luke gives us a little more information. So Luke begins in chapter 22 with the uh, sending of the two into the city to find the large upper room. That's in verses 1 through 13. Only Luke tells us that it's Peter and John are the two disciples that were sent. So I'm thankful for that. It happens to be Peter and John that are prominent in Acts chapter 3. You remember going up to the temple in the hour of prayer and so forth. So we know that they're linked together there, and here they are here. So that I won't repeat that because verses 1 to 13 kind of line up with what Mark has already shown us. He's made preparation. By the way, it shows, again, our Lord's sovereignty. It shows his omniscience. All this was prepared ahead of time, and we can speculate. Did he go and ask each of these people and, and set up the man with the pitcher and make sure he's walking just from the pool of Siloam at just the right time? Or did the Holy Spirit just do that? Either way, it doesn't matter. The Bible doesn't tell us. Either would work, wouldn't it? Our Lord's capable of doing either one. But then in verse 14, when the hour had come, this would line up with Mark uh, chapter 14, you know, around verse 21. When the hour had come, he sat down with the twelve, and he says, With fervent desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. With earnest desire, I've, I've been anticipating. How long do you think he's been anticipating this? We could say at least since the fall in Genesis 3 and the announcement of the seed of the woman. But from Ephesians 1, we could take it all the way back to eternity past, couldn't we? Before the foundation of the world. I've been eagerly desiring, and it's here. See, it gives us a window into the heart of our Lord Jesus. And, and he says, I will no longer eat of it until the fulfillment of the kingdom. He takes the cup in verse 17. Now, it's not the Lord's Supper. It's the, cup of the, the last cup of the Passover because he's still in the Passover regime. Take this and divide it among yourselves and so forth. And then verse 19, he took bread. Now it's the Lord's Supper. Gave thanks and broke it. And this is my body. And it's interesting. Luke gives the verbiage for the Lord's Supper word for word like 1 Corinthians 11, which tells us who our source is for this information. Remember, he's consulting eyewitnesses. And Paul tells the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 11 that where, who was Paul's source for the information about the Lord's Supper? Did he consult one of the twelve who were there? No. He says, I got this directly from the Lord himself. And Paul then gives it. Luke then gets it from Paul, records it in here. That's what happens when we compare Scripture with Scripture. We see them line up and we say, well, of course, Luke was Paul's traveling companion. Luke stayed with him all the way to 2 Timothy chapter 4. He was one of his most faithful companions, of course. Just as it's true that if you hold that Paul wrote the book of Hebrews, he wouldn't have written Hebrews in Greek. He would have written Hebrews in Hebrew because that's what silenced the crowd. Remember when he spoke to the mob in their own language? That would have been during the Caesarean imprisonment. And then Luke translated it into Greek, led by the Lord. Eusebius tells us that's what happened. He's a church historian. He's not always reliable, but it's a reasonable picture because 
Those who study the Greek of Hebrew say, well, it's not Pauline Greek. It's not like his, the Greek in his epistles. Well, no, because Luke translated it. And God can do that if he wants to, can't he? But wherever it be, the writer of the Hebrews officially, the word of God, is left anonymous, and so do we. That's just a possibility that we hold out there. So they celebrate the Lord's Supper, and then the Lord says in verse 21, still in Luke 22, Behold, the hand of my betrayer is with me on the table. Which means Judas hasn't been excused before the Lord's Supper because they just celebrated the Lord's Supper. And we talked about it on the Lord's Day. I won't repeat it in detail, but people say, well, how could the Lord let Judas celebrate the Lord's Supper? The Lord lets a lot of unbelievers celebrate the Lord's Supper. Beloved, come on. Brother Stewart said, don't call it believer's baptism. You don't know you're baptizing a believer, we say, on the basis of your profession. <laughs> I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's all. I can't see your heart. You may be a fake. You may not be saved. We don't know. I do it on the basis of your verbal profession. That's all we've got at first. So technically it isn't believer's baptism. It's baptism. Brother Stewart's right. But it's a technicality. And so he is then beginning to reveal, and again I still say reach out to Judas. And then he says in verse 22, Truly the Son of Man goes as it was been determined, woe to that man by whom he's betrayed. Remember Mark said that in, in Mark 14. And they began to question among themselves, which of them who would do this thing? Is it I, Lord? Is it I, Lord? So you put all of those together to get the events that what really happened so far that night. And that brings us then back to chapter 13 of the Gospel of John. Because John tells us that it was after the supper, the supper being ended in verse 2, the devil having put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot to betray him, the devil's able to put ideas in our hearts that are not true. Right? I had someone, a professing Christian, tell me, you know what, you know, we give the devil way too much credit. We don't, well, Ephesians 6 gives the devil the credit. They call fiery darts. <laughs> and he can land fiery darts of accusation in our minds, things we never would have thought of and had never thought of before. Where did this thought come from? See? And he can put wicked thoughts there too, but we can judge them. The Holy Spirit is revealed. He's plenty powerful to reveal these to us and give us the enablement to confess, judge, forsake, and go on, right? First John 1 9. The blood of Jesus Christ, his son, keeps on cleansing us from most sin, all sin. That's first John 1 7. And so then, having done the foot washing and given the instruction and given the application, verse 18 to 30, then is where I'm trying to get to tonight. Now he dismisses Judas. And to me, it's, it's very instructive to see all of the patience and the long-suffering our Lord has demonstrated to this man. 
And our Lord is omniscient. So he knows all things. He knows he could be patient to Judas for 5,000 years and Judas is never going to repent. He knows that. We wouldn't know that. But he knows that. And yet he does what? He keeps reaching out to him. But as we see in these verses, and this is solemn and very sobering to think about, there comes a time when God's patience runs out, beloved. And we need to let people know this. While we want to communicate the love of God and the mercy and compassion of God, we must communicate that to honor our Lord. We also want to attach the warning. We used it last night in soccer. Proverbs 29.1 He who stiffens his neck after many rebukes will be destroyed suddenly and that without remedy. That person doesn't know when that sudden destruction is going to come. The Lord knows when that's going to be. He knows the exact time of it. And it's going to come so sudden that person is not going to have time then to change it. And Beloved, the lost don't know that. The world's not going to teach them that. We use the term urgency. The urgency of the need to respond. Don't presume you're going to have another opportunity. You don't know that. Boyd Nicholson said years ago, driving around the ring road of this city may be the means to put you into eternity. You may not make it home tonight. You don't know that. And when we share the gospel, there's an element of that urgent. We have to be careful how we do it. And in each case, it's individual how we do it. But they need to know that it's just not going to keep going on and on, that they're going to keep getting these opportunities and they can keep putting off and stiff-arming the Lord. See? And that's what we see here. So now our Lord says in verse 18, I do not speak concerning all of you. There's a definite shift in the subject, isn't there? Up to verse 17, he's talking about Christian community. He's talking about loving one another. He's talking about applying the lesson of the parable of the foot washing amongst themselves and one another. But now suddenly he shifts and says, I do not speak concerning all of you. I know whom I've chosen I know who are really saved, but that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. That verse is a quotation from Psalm 41 in verse 9. And it's interesting, in, in Psalm 41, that's the last psalm in book 1 of the Psalter, a psalm of David. David went through this experience, didn't he? You remember who it was that betrayed David? Ahithophel, right? His trusted friend and counselor. And David will tell us in addition in Psalm 55, if it is an enemy who reproached me, verse 12, then I could bear it. Nor is it one who hates me who has exalted himself against me. Then I could hide from him. <laughs> But it was you, a man my equal, my companion and my acquaintance. We took sweet counsel together and walked to the house of God in the throng. That's why it hurts so bad to be betrayed 
by someone that's very close to you and someone you trusted and someone you thought was something that they weren't. A pretender. And that's what Ahithophel was, and he was a type, if you will, of Judas. And Judas is, without doubt in my mind, the greatest scoundrel, I think even a greater scoundrel than Antichrist in many ways, the greatest scoundrel that ever walked across the page of the Scriptures. When you think of the fact that he lived with our Lord for at least three years, maybe three and a half, walked with him, ate with him, traveled with him, heard his messages, saw his miracles, looked into the very eyes of God when he looked into the eyes of Jesus Christ and then could do this. Beloved, remember what Jeremiah 17, 9 and 10 says about our hearts. If you're sitting there saying, boy, that's a terrible thing for you, I would never do that. <laughs> You've already proven a weakness the heart of man in the flesh is desperately wicked. It's a bottomless pit of destruction. And that's why I don't want to search it out. <laughs> I don't want to learn of the awfulness of the cults. I want to learn the true. I don't want to learn all the counterfeits. I want to learn the real one. We had a, a brother years ago that wanted to do a lessons in Sunday school on counterfeits and all these different cults, and defiled our minds with all this evil thinking. I don't want that. I want good thoughts. I want the Bible in there. I want to be able to wash feet with the Word of God, not with cultic, evil nonsense that's from the pit of hell. So our Lord quotes that scripture again. I believe Judas could have repented here. That scripture had to go right to the conscience or was intended to go to the conscience of Judas. Whether Judas's conscience was seared at this point, like Paul talks about in 1 Timothy 4, that there is a possibility someone can sear their own conscience, make it totally insensitive to anything where they could decide between right and wrong anymore. We don't know. It's possible. Scripture doesn't say that, so we'll have to leave it at that. But then he thinks of the 11 who are going to be so hurt by this and astounded by this and wonder how this could happen. He says in verse 19, Now I tell you before it comes that when it does, you may believe that I'm he, that you may realize I'm God. And that's why I'm able to see these things. Most assuredly I say to you, he who receives whomever I send, and that isn't Judas. That's another outreach to Judas. These 11 are going to be the apostles, the sent ones. He's reminding Judas of what he's missing out on, see? The privilege. Receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me, the Father. And then what an insight, verse 21, is into the heart of God, the heart of our Savior. And when he had said these things, he was troubled in spirit. The word there is like a cold wind blowing through your soul. Have you ever been in that experience? It just, it just makes you shudder. He's troubled in spirit. When our Lord looks at the decisions of the lost to turn against him, to reject the gospel, 
And I think it's wise and helpful for us to remind ourselves of this when we share the gospel with other people. Realize our Lord, he knows what's ahead for Judas. Judas ought to be the one terrified in soul here, but he's not. He's oblivious, see, just like the lost. Just merely going arm in arm down the broad road on the way to destruction, and they don't even care, it seems. And but by the grace of God, there goes you and me with him, right? He's troubled in spirit because he knows what's ahead for Judas, and it, none of it's good. I knew a brother. Can I go a little bit past eight? Because I want to get all the way through to verse 30. I'll speed it up a little bit. But I knew a brother up in Minnesota that... Uh, he was an elder in the assembly up there. This was years ago, so he's with the Lord. It's, I won't mention his name, though. But uh, he was on his way to assembly one Sunday morning. It was icy road. You know, it's rather hilly where he was. And he lost control of the car and ran over a young girl on a tricycle and killed her. It was just a, it was an accident. You know, he was on the ice. That man refused to drive a car ever again after that. And he wasn't old. And someone asked him years later, Brother, it was an accident. You could, you could drive. He said, I, put, I can put someone into a lost eternity. He wasn't saying the girl, the little, she was too young. I'm sure she went straight to the Lord. But I can put someone into a lost eternity. And that hit him with such a relevance. He said, because I have a picture of how bad it is for them in eternity, and it frightens me to even put one person into that place. See, most of us haven't anywhere entered anywhere near that. But if you spend time in the all 66 books of the Word of God, you will move in that direction. Books like Ezekiel and Habakkuk and Isaiah, as well as the New Testament. Books will help us to realize the gravity and the privilege that we have to be children of the King. He's troubled in spirit. Most assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. That lines up with Mark 14 and Luke 22, right? Well, you say, well, see, see, Mark puts it ahead of the Lord's Supper and, and John puts it after the Lord's Supper. He could have said it twice. <laughs> I think he said it before the Lord's Supper in Mark 14, and now he says it again, but he adds more to it here, see. And then the disciples looked to one another, perplexed about whom he spoke. <laughs> I know, you shake your head. How can this be? That's what a clever pretender. This guy was a smoothie. He had fooled all of the other 11, they, they never dreamed it was him. They said it would be me before it would be him. That's frightful, isn't it? And you maybe have met people like that. I, I have too, I think. I mean, we can't see the heart. But some can be really smooth about church things and be lost as a goose. Charismatic personalities and being verbose with scriptural terms and the Pharisees could quote scriptures and they hated our Lord. I mean, just because you quote scripture doesn't mean you're born again. A lost person can do that. 
And so it helps us to be alert when we're sharing the gospel with people. The reality is life, a relationship with the Lord. One of the key things is the Word of God. What's their response to the Word of God? I was talking to someone some years ago, and I said, well, what is, what's your feeling about? Well, I don't need the Scriptures. You know, I, I don't spend time in the Word of God. I said, well, First Peter 2, 2 says that someone born again desires the milk of the Word like a baby desires milk, like Penelope desires milk. And I bet she wakes you up and makes sure she's going to get it, right? And we're to desire the Word of God like that. We get up in the morning. I can't wait to get to the Bible. Is that on your... Then, then you better examine yourself. Are you pretending? Are you fooling yourself? You're not fooling God. But you may be fooling yourself. So they looked at one another perplexed. And there was leaning on Jesus' bosom, one of his disciples. We talked about the triclinium and how they were leaning probably on an elbow. Uh, if they were right-handed, they'd be leaning on their left elbow and using their right hand. And so Simon Peter gestures to John, who's seated near our Lord, so close to him. All he had to do is tilt his head up against the Lord's shoulder or upper body. And the Lord says, it is he to whom I shall have give a piece of bread when I've dipped it. And having dipped the bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, son of Simon. And then something happened to Judas. Something really terrible happened. Satan entered in. And John is very specific. Remember John's writing his gospel? 90 A.D. These events happened in 30 A.D., 60 years after the event. He's had a lot of time to think and ponder with the help of the Holy Spirit to illuminate him and remind him of things. He says... Satan put the thought in his head earlier, but now Satan enters him, and now he's a robot for Satan. He's fully demon-possessed, because anyone demon-possessed is a robot for Satan. (laughs) You wonder how sometimes some of the wicked crimes that we hear about, and these serial killers and that, demon possession is a big part of that, beloved. Don't pretend there's no devil like this professing Christian I talked to recently. He's very active. And that's another reason why we need to be washing one another's feet regularly. The ongoing renewing of the Holy Spirit. And after the piece of bread, Satan entered him. Then Jesus gives him a command. Not before that. See how the, the timing? If the Lord had said, what you do... Betraying me, go do quickly. Get about it. Get about doing it. If he had said that before Satan entered him, then Judas could say, you predestined me to this. I didn't have a choice. It's your fault I'm going to be in a lost eternity. I'm the son of perdition because of you. And, of course, at the great white throne, I'm sure many unbelievers are going to try to accuse the Lord Jesus that he didn't do enough to reach out to him and that They may even bring up our names. So-and-so didn't live the gospel very well before me. No wonder I'm lost or whatever. But it won't matter. It won't matter then. Because it's been appointed unto man once to die. And after that, the judgment. That's an appointment no one's going to be late for. We may be late for appointments here, but we're not going to miss that one. 
And then verses 28 to 30. Look at this. John remembers and elaborates. But no one at the table. Look at this. No one at the table knew for what reason he said this to him. They still didn't think. And now they're rationalizing their reasoning for some thought because Judas had the money box that Jesus said, buy these things and we need for the feast or you should give something to the poor. But having received the piece of bread, he went out immediately and it was night. It was night. Now, we could stop right there, but let me just show you one other statement to be pondering on between now and the Lord's Day, okay? So go back to Luke chapter 22, because right after this, John doesn't tell us, but Luke does, the Lord dealt with Peter. Now, John gives a a quick reference to Peter's loyalty to the Lord and saying, Lord, where are you going? Wherever you're going, I'm going. I'll die for you if I have to. And I believe Peter thought he could die for the Lord. But in Luke 22, we have a picture of our Lord's high priestly ministry, the ministry he's still doing for us now. And it's in verse 31. The Lord said, Simon, Simon, indeed, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. I If you're a born-again Christian here this evening, he's asked for you too. We're not all in the same role or in the same privileges of Simon Peter. So how he goes up, but I believe everyone who really wants to serve the Lord, everyone who really wants to be about the Father's business, Satan's going to say, I want to sift that one. I want to sift him like wheat through there and see how real he is. And God lets Satan do it to a point. He says, but I have prayed for you. Remember what the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 7, verse 25? He ever liveth to make intercession for us. Hebrews 4, 14 to 16. We have a high priest that sympathizes with our infirmities and waiting for us to ask for grace to help in our time of need. So he's introducing his high priestly ministry here, isn't he? With the apostles. I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. Thank you, Lord. Do that for me, too, every chance you get, Lord, please. And for the brethren. And notice it's not if. I hope your Bible doesn't say if. It's not if, but when you have returned to me. (laughs) He's predicting his restoration, isn't he? When you have returned to me because of my intercession for you, despite the trial you're about to go through, Peter, go and strengthen your brethren. And he does. He wrote First and Second Peter to strengthen the brethren. We still have it. He's still strengthening the brethren all these 2,000 years, you see. So another aspect of community, Christian community, another aspect of washing one another's feet is being sensitive in our own minds. Beloved, I was reading a book on the conscience recently. It was fascinating. 
Judas, did, that did not happen overnight for him, and it doesn't for anyone. It starts with rationalizing sin, and we are all pretty well expert at it, maybe even almost from the womb, but it doesn't take very long before we become very good at explaining away. They start with little sins, little lies, little tricks, little deceptions. Well, I had to do this because, you know, and we make some sort of rationalization. And if you don't judge that, it will build, and you will desensitize your conscience to recognizing it. That's what this is telling us. That's what, why we need to be cleansed in our feet every day in the Word of God. And as we talked about on the Lord's Day, come to the Word of God in the morning. For me, I'm going to start the day with it, but whatever time works for you. I'm going to give him the most alert time of the day for me. It all drops off after there. But in the morning, the most alert times for the Lord. And, and, and expect it. Ask him, Lord, I'm coming to you because I need a cleansing. Don't be proud and say, well, I don't need a cleansing, but somebody, brother so-and-so needs a cleansing, so give me a verse for him. He say that, that was Adam's mistake. He was quick to deflect the, uh, the blame, wasn't he there? The guilt. Our Lord is able here, see. He was there for Peter. He'll be there for you and me. I, I didn't want to close on the negative note of Judas. We'll look a little bit more. I want to say a little bit more about this intercession work of our Lord on the Lord's Day and then move on there to some wonderful, glowing encouraging statements from our Lord beginning in verse 31 of chapter 13 and on into the beginning of 14. Still in the two chapters dealing with community, our Lord is encouraging. And, beloved, aren't you glad that we have keepers, that we are our brother's keepers? I'm glad for you. We're glad for each other, and we need each other. And not only that, God's going to hold us accountable. We are responsible for each other. And even, I'm not just responsible for my sanctification. I'm responsible for others' sanctification too, to a lesser extent than my own. But still, we can be involved. And we need to be, beloved. Amen? So thank you for your patience too. Father, we, we thank you for these scriptures. And help us to think about these things and to reflect on these scriptures and to realize how magnificent you are, how omniscient you are, how powerful you are, and that everything is good when we keep ourselves in your, in your will and purposes, right in the center of your will for each one of us. And that's within reach of any one of us who's born again. Help us to think about these things. We may have things we need to judge. Help us to do that in our own lives and get back on track like Peter did. And we'll give you the thanks and the praise. Be with us as we travel home tonight. Get us home safely. Thank you for all of these wonderful young children, too, here in the meeting. We pray these things in the Lord Jesus' name.